This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So, picture this. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, (laughs) Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. (laughs) And the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Nobody makes up anything. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator, the voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears to your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time, to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't, further down the line. We're still here. <laughs> We're still here. You know, I, every time I listen to your intro, Tonio, I, I get something else out of it. It's really, it's really lovely. So, what'd you get out of it this the time? The birds. The birds. I heard those little birds, and I felt. I was wondering, do you do that all the time, or is it just because it's spring that I've, I heard them? I have um, many, many, many different variations. I'm not surprised. <laughs> but that's one of that's one of my favorite ones that begins with with the birds yeah the mad birds birds. they sounded kind of sweet to me oh they're very sweet Uh, sweet and mad 
two of my favorite well, qualities. <laughs> to somebody, they sound quite mad. <laughs> I thought they were. Yes, mistaking um, madness for sweetness is something I've, I've worked on doing. But anyway, it's really great to be here. <laughs> As for me... Is it great for you, Tomas, to be here? Oh, it's wonderful to be I back so. after the last time. But I was uh, I am not ashamed to confess that this was the first time I've heard your intro, Tonya. And it seemed so appropriate for the reason you guys brought me in today. Because it's about stories. Stories about Superman, about the guy who walked on the moon, and the stories we tell. Which is one of the reasons I'm here We're today. here, yes. Yeah. And... And, yeah, and I want to introduce you. Well, what a good idea. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> because you are my guest, our guest, Tomas Kalmar. And you have a, a very interesting history, which we delved into somewhat on the last show, on Carla's show last week. But do you remember any of the, the gaps, the things that we missed? Most of my life. Exactly. So... <laughs> Somehow or other, I, I assume that there's some major connection between this book you've written and, and your life. Yeah, of course there is, yes. And I suspect that the two will unfold together this morning. Probably, yes. In some mysterious and unfathomable way. Maybe I've, you can fathom it, but I, uh, um, I'm, still, I'm still totally mystified by by all of it. I think that one of the reasons I was so glad to be invited to come and talk about my book, my mm -hmm. magnum opus, is because I knew that talking about it would help me do exactly what you just described. So what's, what's the title? What's the actual title of this book? Or is there a, an oh, actual title? There is a title. This book, by the way, to sort of put this on the table, uh, exists at the moment... No, what we're really talking about is the proposal for the book. And the reason is that <coughs> I met my deadline. I set myself the deadline of May 15th to submit the proposal to a publisher and a, for a series that finally seemed to be really, really interested in doing this book. And so what I had to do was sum it up in 2,000 words. There's a proposal form. And so this is what I was able to send you guys, that the 2,000, no, 1,500 word, 1,500 word, two pages, in two pages to sum up this book that I've been carrying around inside me. For how long? Since I was 19. Wow. And now I'm 76. Wow. <laughs> and my uh, passion for making sure that I would get this book written before I die is pretty weird I figure I'm kind of like those guys you hear about who <clears throat> every Sunday for years and years worked on making a boat out of matchsticks you know and finally after <laughs> a giant boat yes finally after yeah. 50 years the boat is done and that's what they did with their life and it f will it float <laughs> <laughs> and if I had been here even two years ago, or ten years ago when I was first at Goddard, it would have been the story of how my articles about King Alfred, I haven't yet told you the title, kept getting rejected by academia, but I was not going to give up. So it was my lifelong battle with academia, and especially with Harvard. <laughs> but let's leave that aside for the moment and answer your question. The title has changed in the last uh, few months 
because it's coming out for a series called, a new series called Hagiography Beyond Tradition. Now, hagiography was touched on in your intro. It's those stories about angels and saints and magic. Those stories that, you know, historians cannot abide. Mythological figures. Mythological. I prefer hagiographic because, <coughs> press me on these issues, because I want to understand what my book is. I want to understand how to, how to persuade people that my book is worth reading. And I want to make sure that our listeners can understand what the hell you're talking about. So, guy so hagiographic. Because one I had thing never it, heard that. Had you heard that word before, no, Tony? No, never. I, okay. and, I feel better now. And <laughs> me and Carla, uh, we, we sort of conversed a bit on, on this synopsis of yours. And even Carla, with her, she's an English teacher. and Whoop-dee-doo. And yeah, that's high, <laughs> high school um, principal and, and college professor for many years. She, she confessed that she had to pull out the dictionary many times <laughs> while reading it. <laughs> Which is not a, a bad thing to do. I encourage it, and I'm willing to admit Carla, that. Carla, give us, give us a couple more examples of moments <laughs> where you felt that you know you needed to... Was redaction criticism one of them? Oh, <laughs> one. Yeah, one of many. Well, yeah. And it sounds then, like it's unintelligible, and I need to keep no, working on no, it. No, no, not at all. It's just uh, maybe I just needed to dust off my brain a bit. I loved how I was being stretched just getting through the the description of your of your book it's a whole I mean I have I have questions but I did I you know Tonio will attest I did say to him I'm glad you're going to be leading this interview because <laughs> my I can in, intuitively uh you know really I, I think intuitively move with a with a guest on the radio show pretty pretty well for a novice. However, this one would have been um, a little more challenging, which is why I'm glad I'm here as a as a as a kind of witness participant. Um, uh, I, I don't know what I, just just being here as a as a as a person in awe of this work. And I will admit, I am also quite interested in stories about um, saints. And, yeah, and I am. I'm and really anything interested. that you have yeah. spent your your entire <laughs> life working on that too must have some amazing stuff in it, especially in the way that it's related and intertwined with your own life. Which, judging by who you are, I mean, my visceral sense of who you are. I, I'm just utterly fascinated to find out yeah. about this. And who you are. I mean, maybe, right. we maybe want, people we who are want, listening want to know. Both of us both, really yeah. want to find out more about who are about you who, and who your you connection to the, the same Because you're such, you're, 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 this, you're just a fascinating character. So are you. <laughs> Look, uh, you're, you're, like, you're an embodiment of this kind of hagi hagiographic. Uh, <laughs> I'm so glad you noticed. <laughs> what's the origin of the word? Hagiographic. It's a Greek word. Uh -huh. You take a word like biography. Uh -huh. bio, bios is uh -huh. life. <laughs> Autobiography, self written when you write it about yourself. Mm -hmm. The graphy, of course, is pretty yeah, well known. That one I knew. Biography, geography, what anything, you know, mm -hmm. when you write about it. Hagios just means holy, like oh. Hagia Sophia, holy. The holy thing I missed. Holy well, yes. <laughs> long ago. <laughs> I skipped Oh the oh holy the, ho the holy thing we we fell into gra the graphy I got, the holy I skipped. What, what? Whoops, now I get it. So this is story of the holy. What is your experience, personal experience, of uh, institutionalized religion? 
Mine? Yes, that's distinct from Ooh. spirituality. Um, well, I grew up Jewish, and so I, I was reaching desperately for it, and my brother was running from it. So my good Jewish parents forced my brother into the institutional world of Judaism and barred me from it. So I've spent a life trying to kind of get back in, and yet I've interpreted it not in a very orthodox manner. So that's my uh, I don't think orientation. You'll, I don't yeah. think you'll mind if I sum that up for yeah. present purposes as yeah. not Christian. I'm not. And, oh, uh, And yeah, so therefore... Oh. Yep. Uh, anyone who grew up, you know, in the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. especially my age or older, but also Christians in general, have a certain relationship to hagiography. But what's very charming about this part of the conversation is we're just building up by going round and round in a spiral to the very interesting question, the title of my book. And, uh, and I started to describe the title of my book by naming the series that it goes into. But it was very amusing to me to hear what you guys were saying about your immediate response to this uh, prospectus, I will call it, the two-page succinct synopsis of contents, description of contents. I have to situate what I'm responding to right now by naming the situation that I'm actually in, which is I am submitting a book proposal, a formal book proposal, and a book proposal, if I had had a normal academic career, perhaps I would have had more experience with how to write a book proposal, but it's a genre that you don't often see the finished product. I mean, it's a proposal. It's a business proposal, I decided. It's like, it's like applying for a, for, a, for a mortgage. At one level, <laughs> you're asking some company to invest money in something that will sell. And just because you've written a book or can write a book doesn't mean you know how to market it. But nowadays, you know, you have to submit this proposal and there were word limits. And the hardest one for me, well, the first hardest one was describe yourself in 147 characters. That has to go on there. You know, it's going to go on the back of the book. Well, it can't say what I wanted to say, which is Tomas Kalmar has been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king. He's been up and down, and he knows one thing. <laughs> that will not do. This is an academic press, Amsterdam University Press. But the thing that was the hardest for me and the most spiritually edifying was to sum up what the book is going to be about in 1500 words and that took me a long long time so back to the point i'm bringing up into this conversation it's been made really clear to me and i understood this from excellent uh, web resources how to write a good book proposal if you're an academic you know especially by this woman who has read many of them because she used to be an acquisitions editor for some la da cambridge university press or something and the main, main thing is it has to be intelligible to someone who doesn't, is not a specialist in your field. Because it will be read by people at the press who are intelligent people, but they may not know Alfred from Arthur, and, and so on, right? And so the question naturally arises, are there too many technical terms in it for someone to grasp what the thing is about? But I also have to say, having written it, gotten it down to this thing, I'm now engaged in email exchanges with really interesting uh, leading specialists, not in the field of King Alfred the Great, but in the field of that is now known as hagiography studies. And even though we only have an hour and a half today for me to tell you the real 
We we could do part two next week. Oh, do let's. We could do it for the rest of my <laughs> yeah, life. I was going to say this the rest of my life. The thing is, <laughs> you could have your own show, maybe. Uh, what? Yes, yeah, called called. It could called be, you know what, what, I, what I would call it? What would you call it? Flotsam and jetsam. Subtitle. Has it already been taken? taken? No, no, it no, hasn't. No. <laughs> Subtitled uh, life, life as hagiography, or no subtitled hagiography as subtitled life. <laughs> relics and reliquaries. Ooh, there's in, yeah, there's a lot of these. Uh, I think arcane if, terms in here. <laughs> I think if my and I, I submitted it, I submitted the proposal, but not formally. I I have a very enthusiastic young editor at. Who's, who's the series editor for this? This is all unprecedented for me. I've had so much trouble getting published, but now I'm being encouraged. And uh, she's encouraging me to submit the proposal. But I haven't formally submitted it because for the first time I'm getting feedback from people before I submit it. And one of the best advices, uh, pieces of advice that I got from the web was when you have it done, show it to somebody who doesn't love you. <laughs> and ask them, is it intelligible and is it interesting? Is there a person out there who doesn't love me? Well, I got onto Facebook and put this on there. <laughs> oh, okay. And I said, you know, I'm looking for someone who doesn't, doesn't. love me. <laughs> and yet is a Facebook friend. That's right, exactly. Well, of course, it had a good, res good results, you know. And uh, now I think it's time to announce the title of the book. Okay. The title has changed as I wrote the proposal. It was before I got this interest from Amsterdam University Press, it was going to be called something like The Place of Asses Vita Alfredi in the Formation of the Alfredian Canon. <laughs> and that's because uh, for about 10, 20 years, my main concentration has been on becoming a accepted at last as a legitimate lifetime member of the International Society of Anglo-Saxonists. The International Society of Anglo-Saxonists meets every two years in a different city around the world, and they're all people who just love Anglo-Saxon England. And it's a very small subset, one could say parochial, provincial subset, of the larger sect called Medieval Studies, mm -hmm. which is, to someone who's been in Anglo-Saxon studies, is this vast field. But if one is in academia, Medieval Studies is already pretty marginal, Though Tolkien and you know Games of Thrones, Game of Thrones, whatever it's called, uh, you know, there's medievalism out there. But actually studying, you know, the original text in the original language and so on, is kind of like not you know high on anyone's academic set of values. And so, um, where was I? What was this all about? The title. The title. The evolving title. Yeah. So, so, so that title shows that I was too focused on trying to persuade, and this has been my vocation for 50 years, trying to persuade the custodians of the history of King Alfred the Great that they had got it wrong, that there was a much better way of interpreting the, the documents. But this scholar, this young scholar, Alicia Spencer-Hall, woke me up from a hypnotic trance because she made it clear to me that there are plenty of people in medieval studies who would find this a very interesting book. Because what the book is about, and that's the title, oh, the title then got changed to The Romantic, oh, yeah, right, right. I wanted to call it Too Good to Be True, The Fable of Alfred's Life. Mm -hmm. Too Good to Be True, The Fable of Alfred's Life. But that would never that's pass a, muster in the academic but world. But that's accessible. Nowadays, I nowadays, I think, you know, I think academia could. is not what it used to be when I was in it. 
and I'm not counting Goddard, not that I want to be rude about Goddard's role in academia. Um, I mean, you know, Harvard, <laughs> which is 50 years ago. Um, uh, but no, this particular press, Amsterdam University Press, makes it very clear that your title has to say, as they put it, using a British expression, it has to label what is in the tin. They will not accept too good to be true the fable of Alfred's life because Victor because librarians will not look up too good to be true. The title has to have the search words in it mm -hmm. so that people know right away and then you can have as the subtitle. Anyway, with that behind us, all this thing about, you know, the title, I mean, I've got a page in my notebooks where I put possible titles. I changed it to the romantic childhood of a dead white man. <laughs> the case of King Alfred the Great. Well, no, that wouldn't do. It would have to be the romantic childhood of King Alfred. Anyway, the title is now, because, of my, because I now understand that there's this vast field in hagiography studies that would be interested in what I'm doing, the title is now <clears throat> King Alfred the Great, His Hagiographers and His Cult. So it's about a man, the people who wrote about him in the style of the saints' lives, which I can talk about and need to, and his cult. The interaction between those three things. And there's a lovely subtitle. Would you like to know the subtitle? Mm -hmm. Ask me what the subtitle is. What is the subtitle? I'm so <laughs> glad you asked. Thank you for asking. The subtitle is A Childhood Remembered. What do you think of that? I'm, I'm wondering if it's redundant. Oh, my goodness. That's a half-constructed thought, but it came up, so I thought I, I might as well say it. Because when you say childhood, you, you, you assume, unless... I mean, it's usually something, something that's remembered. Not necessarily. It depends on the perspective I, of who's writing it. Exactly. I agree. I actually can agree with, with exactly what you're saying, which is why I wanted to admit that it was a half-formed thought, but I wanted to put it out there because... But, this, but that issue happens to be very central to this whole thing because it's all about who is remembering and who's remembering what. Maybe it's a childhood not forgotten, which is different than remembered. Well, there's obviously <laughs> that's a big issue in here too but the perspective of whose version whose story mm, yeah. of this childhood and mm, whose story? and especially when there's no one left alive to tell the tale maybe that's the title Directly. everybody's dead <laughs> who's going to tell the story is that we're, just brain, is, we're brainstorming here that's what i need all of really Oh, God, yes. All of this is... You come uh, to the right place. <laughs> oh, absolutely. All of this is very uh, um, therapeutic for me to hear you guys talk this way. Because, you know, in this space here at Goddard, I feel perfectly comfortable being frank and putting my cards on the table. I have a very isolated life there as a, what we call an independent scholar. And I in Hardwick? Well, yes, in Vermont. In, yes. But not only because of Vermont. It's because I'm so far from academia. And I know why. I've been in and out of academia <laughs> a lot. I've been in and out a lot. But this book means a lot to me. And if I had uh, a circle of... If I was in academia... Not, let me put it this way. I have a lot of friends who are still in academia. Mm -hmm. It's the pits. 
I mean, they work and their yep. butts off. They don't have any time to read. They don't have time to think. They're involved in committee meetings. Da, 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 and I'm not. Nevertheless, the, the lucky ones, the ones who are doing well, get to chit-chat and shop talk. Mm-hmm. And if they're working on a project, they get to knock on someone's door and say, I've got a better title. What do you think of this title? And, you know, get this kind of feedback. And uh, the part that I haven't yet written is how to situate my work in the scholarly tradition on the topic. Well, it's a community. As I hope will come clear today, it's a contribution to a number of different fields in a number of ways. Anyway... A Childhood Remembered uh, is what would appear on the front cover. It's what would appear, you know, as a title. And it does what I wanted to do because this little conversation the two of you had. This is before someone's even read the blurb on the back or maybe, you know, they've leafed through the scene and seen the chapter headings, which are t- chapter titles, which are real cute. Um, but anyway, just on its own, A Childhood Remembered. You know, you, one remembers one's childhood. Yeah. But not everybody does. No, I mean, I tried... Not. What's one of your earliest memories? Do you remember learning to swim, Carla? Oh, that's so traumatizing. Tell us about it. (laughs) I'm still learning how to swim. Um, My mother was very clear that if I stayed away from bodies of water, I would not drown, as opposed to learning how to swim in order to save my life. So I, I taught my children how to swim very young. But for me, I never really did learn how to swim, and then when I can't move to Colorado as an older teenager, it's it's a graduation requirement in Colorado, or at least in this district where I was, I spent my junior and senior year, that I'd have to learn how to swim. So I had to take swimming. So I avoided going to class, and then I wasn't going to graduate, and then I had to make up the classes. And I stood there with my at eighteen, almost eighteen years old, probably seventeen at the time because I didn't graduate anyway. Because of the doesn't matter, I was standing there with my swimming teacher looking at that pool at Arapahoe High School smelling the chlorine petrified and she said you're going to have to jump in that water I said there's nothing there I want I said <laughs> you threw some, like a cookie like something anyway she found me amusing and so she passed me but I did jump in and I did fall into the water went underneath and bobbed up I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> How about you, Tony? Do you remember learning to swim? No. Don't you feel, Tonya, that um, if someone knew nothing more about Carla <laughs> than this particular story, but precisely the way Carla told it, that they actually would have learned a hell of a lot about Carla? Well, as I was listening to her story, I was also reflecting back on the picture that Carla posted of herself. Or that her daughter posted oh. of her when she was nineteen. No, I was pro- no, I was. She was a baby, so I was twenty-two or twenty-three. Wow, you look you look like a teenager. <laughs> I mean, you you look you look like you could be in your mid-teens <laughs> in that picture. I mean, very aged. very cute picture. Very cute. My daughter, girl. she's sweet. She she has these pictures of that I gave her of myself younger and herself. So on Mother's Day, so she puts them on Facebook. So I can imagine yeah. her standing at the edge of the <laughs> pool in a bathing suit, I just was petrified. Wearing a suit. Yeah. Just like... This is already <laughs> interesting. Uh, allow me to get back to the question the way I posed it. Mm-hmm. If, you do, if you knew nothing mm-hmm. from Facebook or anywhere else, mm-hmm. if the only thing surviving about Carla was this story... Mm-hmm. Doesn't it tell you a lot about Carla, or does it not? It it gives you a doorway 
with with a particular perspective, but it but it's a very tiny perspective. It's everything you would know about her, but it's very very little at the okay, same time. Okay, here I go. Ready? Um, it's easier for me because you know Carla so much better than I do. This is a story about someone who learned to swim. Um, and it was an ordeal, and but she did it. And well, she passed. She didn't. She didn't actually <laughs> indicate whether she actually learned to swim. She did. She did say that she passed. That was, to me, was the crux of it. <laughs> Viewing it from the angle, the point of view of the protagonist of the story, mm-hmm. uh, there is a teacher. Mm-hmm. There is an institutional requirement. There is a question of why on earth this requirement is even there. It's got nothing much to do with what I want. Where's the cookie? There is this experience of your body going into the water and you survive. You go down, but you bob back up again. I could continue in this style. And then if somebody found out they wanted to know more about this person and they found out the rather extraordinary career they've had in educational reform, I think you would say the story throws some light on the inner life of this educator. What do you think? How do you think I'm doing, Carla? It's it's interesting because it's true. That's one I think why I love story. I think what I'm what you're saying resonates because it's one of the reasons I love story because it's the story and it's more. It's it's a window. It's because now I'm remembering when that whole thing I just told you happened again many years later in a completely different scenario. It's a story for another time, but I ended up jumping off of a cliff into water after I was invited by some friends (laughs) to show my courage. And um, I forgot the connection between the two. Would you say that in the last couple of weeks you jumped off the cliff into water? I I would (laughs) say in the last couple of weeks I have, yeah. And And there's another insight I had. Good related insights. to this is better those. than therapy. Yeah, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. And and it's less expensive as well. This experience. Oh, you haven't seen my bill yet. Oh, radio is therapy. <laughs> uh, that's my. Well, you haven't seen our bill yet. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, let's call it quits. <laughs> that's right. If we don't talk too even, often, we even might Stephen, have to, we might we have to talk thumb too wrestle. much. We we just might break even. <laughs> we, we're not keeping count, and the therapy for me has already been worth everything. <laughs> so I was I was reflecting on you know Carla's experience with this learning experience with the teacher and the water and swimming and not having anything no cookie has because I've had many conversations with Carla about education and her approach to education and I think that story reflects very much upon how she relates to students and how she's very expansive in her willingness to meet students where they are and accept them as they are and approach education from that place rather than the traditional method of the teacher has this thing that it's going to either shove down your throat, 
beat you over the head with or <laughs> or some other or I may metaphor. add or I may add the teacher may say look I don't make the rules but you have to pass this test mm-hmm. And the teacher's upset about it, but can't do anything about it. That's going on all the time now. Not, yes. not only in college, but in K to twelve. That's a bit more modern. Anyway, <laughs> I will admit, I, I I understand why it's important to swim. Um, I wish I, I I wish I was a better swimmer. And it's funny. I love the water. It's really an interesting relationship. So it's it's complicated. This the but that that snapshot of the of I think what you're getting at is. What, what does it mean to transcend one's fear? I'm sure that that's part of what uh, I seem to be getting at. What I'm conscious of is that I'm directing this part of the conversation towards a childhood remembered mm-hmm. and what my book is really about. Because in the last two or three months, as I worked on this proposal, I've had epiphany after epiphany Every two weeks, I said, oh, my God, my book is really about such and such. It just got deeper and deeper and deeper until I was telling Bridget, my beloved wife, that that what's happening to me is that I'm getting to write the book I wanted to write 50 years ago and not the book that I've been concentrating after being buffeted this way and that way, but the book that I really wanted to write in the voice in which I really wanted to write it. And so I'm going around saying, I have found my voice, <laughs> which is an allusion to our conversation last time I was here about you can't require of people who come to God that they have a transformative experience. But what I really should have said at that time was you can't require that they find their voice. But that's really what we work on. And when the, when the advisee finds their voice, then we all look at each other and say, okay, you, you, you make it now. Say something in your voice because your voice is what you're going to say things in. So a childhood remembered and why I asked you uh, about your swimming. For me, what I was after was the structure of the story, the plot of the story. And so then I was postulating, speculating, playing with the possibility that the plot of the story recurs in a person's life when nothing to do with swimming is the case. And that there's still, this is a way of coping with a challenge that one has to cope with. How to, not everybody learns to swim. And you almost didn't. Maybe that's not quite well put, but there are people who say, no, I never learned to swim. I, I don't know how mm-hmm. to swim. So I should bring my sainted mother into the conversation. My mother has a good deal to do with how I turned out the way I did and why I'm doing this. My mother taught me that if you want to know someone quickly... Ask them how they learned to swim. Mm. Because when a child is growing <laughs> up, they and, and they learn to swim, they have to cope with the challenge of a new way of relating to their body and their environment. And everybody had copes with it in a, their own way. And then as you go older and older... Not consciously, but your memory goes back to problems you've solved in the past and what the characteristics were of the problem. Spiraling around, mm-hmm. back and around. Right. And, so, yeah. and so this story turns out to be a kind of a recurrent ruling metaphor for you because as you grow older, you find, oh, yeah, I know where I am. This is, you know, this is what's going to happen. Anyway, I've always asked each of my advisees at Goddard and indeed all my students, wherever possible, how did you learn to swim? And what they answer helps me as an advisor be a good advisor. I'll just give two examples. Oh, said one of them, 
I never actually did learn to swim, but I'm float. I love to float. I found when I put my head back and was floating, I didn't have to move, and I was okay. And you will not be shocked to hear that this advisee pretty much floated through Goddard. <laughs> none of the none of the advisors were ever able to get her to get her head wet, <laughs> to go where you can't quite breathe for a moment. On the other hand, there was my other advisee, whom I've never forgotten, who remembered diving down to the bottom of the lake, the pond, and coming back up to the surface with a, something in her teeth beautiful that she had found on the bottom of the pond. <laughs> and this was an advisee who lived <laughs> down there and from time to time came up to the surface with some jewel. Was a, her semester with me was all about can you really remember your dreams? She was trying to get to the point where she would write down the dream as soon as she woke up, but she was aware that what you wrote down wasn't the dream. I mean, it was deep spiritual stuff. So, with that said, a childhood remembered, and the guy, the, the rather you know interesting little riff that you guys played off it, is meant to convey, and I believe it does convey, as soon as one starts pondering it, Someone lived a thousand years ago. He was a famous king. Stories are told about his childhood. What is the value of the stories? What on earth can they tell you about the guy? And not only this dead white man who was the king of England in the ninth century, but any famous person. So you read a biography and he tells you, when they were a child, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, I always want to know, is that a story somebody told about them, like their mother or their friend or their enemy, or is it a story they told about themselves? And I'm curious to know whether you think there's a really significant difference between the stories people tell about someone else and the stories they tell about themselves. Uh, well, definitely. Why? Uh, well, I mean, you don't have to answer that. I, I, I mean, I think it's our filters. Um, I'm not saying one is true and one is not. There are different variations of truth. But I would, I would think that your own telling of your own story carries with it um, that introspection and that, that I mean it's yeah. it's how you're making your yeah. way through life yeah. somebody right. else looks at you then right. they're they're putting their they're projecting their own their okay. own filter okay I'm going to use this as an excuse to try the, the uh, spiritual discipline I haven't yet managed to do which is how to say in a sentence what the book is about and uh, Gonna say, ready, set, go, and I'm gonna say it as short as possible. Go. This book is about how two stories told about the childhood of someone who lived, of, of King Alfred the Great, might have been. Hmm, this isn't gonna work. Might have been his own. Uh, he might have been the author of the stories. They may be his own memories. When we hear these stories about Alfred's childhood, are we hearing a myth? If it's a myth, there is no hope of getting beyond the mythical mythical level. I mean, they used to be. In the 19th century, they tried to show there was some historical event that was behind the myth, but obviously they were misunderstanding what a myth is. A myth doesn't depend on there being a historical event behind it. It depends on a different kind of truth. But a hagiographic story, which claims to be about a saint, is on the intersection 
of mythology and history, of fantasy and fiction. If the saint never even existed, which it turns out some of them didn't, <laughs> then... And some of the major ones, there's, there's no, you know, defining proof one way or the other. Oh, I'm going to take up, up with you, Tonio. Name one. Jesus. Ah, we're getting right to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> that was your high school report after you did the Chicago right 7. Right Didn't you to do the a big I I did a major report on Jesus as a human being on earth as opposed to being you a did? god. I was really interested in it. So I wait a minute. What what saint didn't exist? That's what I'm Yeah, I thought all Jesus. saints Jesus. Jesus. Are you saying Jesus of, didn't exist? There's 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 controversy. There's very <laughs> strong. You might go to five and say there are wars if you want. You mean yeah. didn't exist on Earth as a huge? Exactly, as a, as exactly. There's, oh. there's very strong arguments on both sides, and neither can be proven. Huh? I, I must have missed that in my well, in-depth let study. Throw, let me throw another one in the mix. How about Abraham Lincoln? Is he a myth? Did he ever exist, or is he just made up? Well, we have we have a tendency to believe in history. And, and one of the things that I love to say at times is that history, well, history and fiction are same, are much, in, in many ways, the very same thing. A very abstract answer, Tonya, but I will take it as a yes. You do believe that Abraham Lincoln existed. I do tend and to believe And if someone came in, to you and said, history. I don't believe he existed, you would say that person didn't know enough to really form an opinion because there's so many documents that prove he existed, right? Yes. Somewhere between Jesus and Abraham Lincoln usually called the Middle Ages, there are these people who might or might not have existed, right? Mm -hmm. But you claim that there are famous saints who never existed, and I wanted to put you on the spot, and so yeah. far you've named the most famous, but apart from Jesus, as they might say on Monty Python, yeah, well, apart from him... This is going to take... Was Jesus a saint, considered a saint? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I think he, he, he squarely fits... I've never fits, heard of Saint Je he, Jesus. He, he squarely fits in the realm of hagiography. We need a... Oh. We need a couple of more Christians in here. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but I have to tell you, I'm I am somewhat obsessed with Saint Francis. Like that's a huge. Okay, did he exist? Oh yes, and so he did existed. Claire. So oh, did Claire. Yes. So we're getting beautiful. we're getting really warmer here because I didn't know that people like uh, Carla, who's present here today in Mexico, we say que aquí está presente. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that Carla would be somebody who cared at all about saints. Oh, but apparently, okay. what uh, in the last 50 years, a lot has changed. Because now, in the last 20 years, in academia, and I think it began with thoughtful feminists, there's actually quite a considerable, lively, intelligent interest in these women saints. Yeah, Saint Joan. These women saints who had male hagiographers, whose lives were written by men. And so, back to my title... King Alfred, his hagiographers, and his cult is meant to be an allusion to those who are in hagiography studies, and I've been communicating with some of the leading people in it now because they liked what, what I put on, on, on the listserv there, who have been writing about Saint So-and-so and her hagiographers and their cult. So, it is clear that there are some saints who existed, and putting aside the ones who never existed, they say Christopher, St. Christopher never existed. Really? Yeah, they had, to, they had to let him go. But we're talking about the, the borderland, the borderland, I'd like to call it now an ecosystem, the border between history and myth, between history and hagiography, between history and saint's life. Because when you write a saint's life, and they were the most popular genre in the Middle Ages, countless saint's lives were written, 
because you could say the saint flew through flew through the air and saved you know the victim saved Lois Lane from horrible things the saint put a fire out when there was a fire he lifted his hand and the fire went out you could say all these miracles if you were up for it or there were cases where the saint actually knew the person who was writing about him and and you can get into well we know a lot more about this saint apart from the saint's life what can we tell from the story told about him in this saint's life? So hagiography refers first and foremost to a saint's life. So my guy, Alfred the Great, did exist, and in the 19th century, the professionalization of history, where historians started to draw the line on all these legends, saved Alfred from being merely a figure of legend like Arthur. Arthur! He was a Celt! <laughs> Arthur and all of that, they were just, that was a myth. You don't have to listen to the Irish and the Welsh. They're like, you know, that's just the uh, them. We, the Anglo-Saxons, I'm talking about England under Queen Victoria, we had a founding father, King Alfred, and he really existed. And it took a bit of work to prove that he existed because there were only a few documents. The fact that there are any at all... You guide me on this. I'm getting into the... The fact that there are any documents at all is very unusual. For somebody in the 8th, 9th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th century in England, in Europe, there aren't many things that survive. And for kings who would not write, you know, they didn't really write, you're lucky if you know their names and you might know their names and you know nothing more about them than their names and maybe some claim that they took the throne in such and such a year and ruled for so many years and that's it. And they begat so-and-so. And they were begotten by such and such. But for the case of dear old Alfred, there is a substantial amount of documentation which a person can certainly, you know, get to know. Unfortunately, it's in Latin of a very peculiar sort. Not the kind of Latin you learn in school, if you did learn Latin in school. It's 9th century Welsh Latin. Very strange. Kind of Old English. Uh, well, then there's Old English. Anglo-Saxon. Old English. So... The book is about these two childhood stories that are told about him, and I treat them as if they were stories in the Gospels. How did you find the stories? Oh, the stories are very well known. Okay. They've been well known for a thousand years. This thing that I call his cult has been... There's always, century after century, decade after decade, there have been people who adored Alfred like I do. I am in communion with all those other people who have adored Alfred throughout history. Even though I'm the only one who really knows what he was like. (laughs) So really, the book is about your relationship with those stories. No. I do not come into the book. It's about... It's not about my relationship with the stories. When When a biblical scholar raises the question of taking a parable that is attributed to Jesus or, for that matter, a miracle that's attributed to him. Mm. But take the parables, because I think those are particularly interesting and challenging. Here are three parables that look like they might have been composed by the same person. They've got something in common. It's hard to tell with a parable. A man went out to sow. He sowed broad uh, broadcast he just cast the seed wherever it fell some of it fell on stony ground some fell on uh, good soil and some of it multiplied a hundred fourth well what's that mean you know so the question was was it 
Jesus the author of these parables. And the scholar who's writing about that does not write, at least not explicitly, about what the parable means to me. No, they show what the parable has meant to many people, yes. And they can show that the parable has meant all sorts of things to people. And they can show, I'm talking about myself now, they can show that this story of the childhood, or the, I haven't told you what the two stories are, has meant quite different things to different people because they bring something different to the story. And what they bring to it, what they say the story means, tells you more about them than it does about the story sometimes. Am I getting anywhere? Well, that's, I think that's what I'm asking. How do you peel yourself away? I want to hear, are you going to share with us what the two stories are? I could, yes. Yeah, I would, and I think what I was trying to ask, say, or pose, is that it would be challenging, I would think, to peel yourself completely away from the story you're telling. So you... Well, it's impossible. Well, that's what I was going to suggest, but I did... Maybe not 100% impossible, but... I'm a little bit out of my depth here and starting to get the rather pleasant feeling that I'm an advisee at Goddard with two advisors <laughs> who are trying to get me to see something about myself. Yeah. Look, um, no, 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 no. Actually, no, I am. No, I'm trying to... Truly curious. Ultimately, I want to find out more about you yeah. in relation through this... Through this uh, I'm not going to help you with that. Topic. I'm not going to help you with that. You'll yeah. have to just be on your own for that. The, the thing is this. I thought that scholarship academic scholarship is precisely about not saying I, 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 this is me, 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 me. No, you have to say that you're writing about Abraham Lincoln or whatever it is, ecology, right? Mm -hmm. And I am aware suddenly that when I was an active advisor here and I advised something like a hundred advisees all told, or maybe that's how many packets I write, anyway, big numbers, (laughs) um, a very important and recurrent motif in trying to persuade someone that they had to write at a college level was there was, if I remember there were three criteria. One is, are you talking is this informed by your own experience? Good. Are you able to say how this compares with what other people have said about this? Right? I forget what the third one is. (laughs) Now, if I write about (laughs) Alfred and me. I mean, I have thought, you know, King Alfred and me would be mm-hmm. a very funny story, and mm-hmm. especially it would be my whole story of my life because I've, I, I've done so many things. And when uh, I hit rock bottom and got up again and kept going, you know, Alfred's my relationship to Alfred was always part of that, and trying to get published was part of it, and why I couldn't get published. But no, it's important to me in this book that it be written in a tone of voice that cannot be mistaken for my private insanity. I am aware that I have stuck my neck out and have become very vulnerable by submitting this proposal because anyone who reads the book, anyone who reads the proposal, will immediately understand that this is written by someone who is totally out of their gourd. They are willing to spend, you know, their lifetime and asking the reader to read for, you know, a hundred pages about three little stories that this guy claims reveal this enormous amount of stuff about someone who died, you know, long ago. But I want to do it, as I say at the end of that, pardon my French, without abandoning the sichere Gang einer Wissenschaft. The sichere Gang einer Wissenschaft is this German expression from the 19th century that a historian reaches their results by going through the steady advance of a discipline. I'm not speculating. I am 
demonstrating the truth of my propositions by my methodology. <laughs> I don't know where I've got into this point here, to, why I'm bridling at the idea that, you know, it's my story. Anyway, uh, the, 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 to me, the stories are artifacts that circulate in society. Stories get told, they change as they're told for different reasons. They, they, if they don't meet anybody's need, they stop being told. The story gets told over and over again because it meets the needs of a certain community. But the community changes, and so the story changes. Does anything stay the same? Well, yes, the plot stays the same. But the different ways in which it's told don't. And so by looking at the plot, you understand something about these communities that liked to tell these stories. This is the heart of organizational development work as well. Which oh, go on, Michaela. Please, yes. please tell me more. That's so interesting because that's another hat I wear because I'm an educator and schools and school cultures are so important in trying to understand teaching and learning and how we create these institutions that we force children to be a part of. Anyway, aside from that political commentary, I got really interested in organizational development and what you just said is at the heart of the work that I do with organizations or try to do, which is understand the mythology because when I talk to people, I enter an organization and I'm try I was hired for a reason to support them in any particular way. I have to spend most of my time listening to their stories. And over and over again, this, there's these very specific stories, like you're, exactly what you're saying, are told over and over again, and often depending on who I'm talking about, or, or, or not about who I'm talking to, uh, will tell it differently, or the, there'll be little, you know, there'll be a few different things. Maybe it was raining or not, or there was an end table. But it doesn't matter because the heart of the story needs to be told because the mythology or the wound, or there's a reason, and it's so informative to listen to how they're, they're doing that. And isn't it also interesting that you, coming in as a friendly person from, I'm going to say, outside the cult, if you let me use that mm -hmm. word, yeah, exactly, uh, can see a recurrent pattern that one would have thought might be obvious to people who are in it, but sometimes it's not. Oh, no. And so I'll pick up, and I think this is not getting off topic, um, one can go to take a case of a college such as, oh, for example... Goddard. Um, you step into the river, you step out of it, you step back into it ten years later. The stories have changed, but the plot has not. And when I was here in 2001, 2002, and the college was falling apart and had to reconstitute itself, and a really interesting question was, is it still the same college, or is it now something new and different that has really just got the same name? But I went back and looked in the archives... And there were these really sensitive, intelligent faculty, whom I, of course, had never known from, say, 1970 or 1950, and long uh, epistles, I won't call it the war of the memos, but long, heartfelt epistles, diagnosing what the problem was at Goddard and what needed to be done to remedy it, and it was the same plot. That's one case, a recurrent motif the other example is I worked at an organization called the Adult Literacy Resource Institute in Boston. It gave... Uh, I was staff development specialist. You gave, we gave technical support to 14 funded agencies that were doing adult literacy, as it was called in those. There's adult education, adult basic education. Our, uh, uh, the, the director who had been chosen for the position was a black woman. Uh, 
the stories that were told about this organization had a lot to do with the fact that because she was a black woman, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and these recurrent problems came up. But I went down to New York where there was a very similar function, an organization with a very different name. The director of that was a New York Jew, a male New York Jew, probably straight. Uh, Maybe not. Anyway, the stories that they told were the same stories. But now they were about him. And so I concluded, this is, I think, on your wavelength, Mm -hmm. that there was a systemic thing going on that created these recurrent challenges and that we need to tell stories in order to understand systems and so we tell these stories because they help us make sense of it. Now to still wrap up what I think is the gestalt I was on that which is the stories told about this king are very interesting if you just treat them as stories, as parables and so I pull out all this meaningful juice from the stories and then I say, well, what if they are his own childhood memory? And I proved to my satisfaction that they were. He told these stories about himself. And so that changes things because then the meaning of these stories is the parable that he told himself about how he learned to read or about how he became king. So here we go. Now, so is the basis of this story King Alfred reflecting back upon his childhood or is this from his childhood perspective, reflecting upon himself. That's the question. And it's, I managed to connect it to your friend Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) My (laughs) brother-in-law. The one you wondered whether he exists or not. And certainly whether the stories told about him are mere myths or whether there's anything to them that connects with the man named Jesus. Because once I started looking at it critically, many of the stories told about Jesus were also told about other healers and magic people. Many of the parables which he allegedly put into circulation resembled parables that you find from the rabbis or from, for that matter, in Islam or in China for all I know or, or Africa, anywhere. You know, they're just folk mm-hmm. tales. Mm-hmm. And um, so in the, in the 19th century, there was the quest for the historical Jesus. This was the idea that by using historical criticism, which is technical and strict, you separate the fact from the fiction. If it's documented, then it's fact. If it's not documented, you can't say it. Search for the Holy Grail. Yeah, what's the that? The reliquary. Well, say more, say more. What are you talking about? Looking for an artifact that anchors it into our physical reality. Or, yeah... Something along those lines. <laughs> so it's like a, that would be proof. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and I think what you're saying is that the story, the story became an artifact. That wasn't. I caught that. Would you? The story became an artifact. If you if you can somehow verify or legitimize the story, it becomes okay. An artifact. To put a little tough love into this. If um, <laughs> if a historian looks at some claim about Abraham Lincoln. Let's leave his childhood out for a moment and then bring it back in in a second. But in such and such a day, he did such and such. And they find a document that says, no, it was not on the 4th of May, it was on the 7th of April. Then they can put in their biography of of, of Abraham Lincoln. It was not on the 4th of May, it was on the 7th of April. Because it was written down, is that what you're saying? We have proof. Right? 
And if they find that it says such and such, and they can't find any proof anywhere that that was even true, they'll say, well, we have now found no proof, it's undocumented, and it may not be true. That's called historical criticism, and that's what historians were meant to do, and until fairly recently, that's what they, if they didn't do that, they didn't call themselves historians. The criticism was the criticism of the sources, and if you couldn't trust the source, you had to say, this source has to be handled with caution. <laughs> And uh, so on, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in the 19th century, history really took off because of uh, Sir Walter Scott and historical fiction. And so the historical imagination was released from the rather um, scient or rather unimaginable, what's the word, unemotional history telling. And you were able to, you know, write about these people in the Middle Ages, especially with, as if they had feelings, kind of like ours. But the historians wanted to distinguish the legend and the fiction and the romance from what actually happened. This did not actually happen. Or if it did, it didn't happen that way. It happened this way, right? Or there's no way to know. Or there's no way to know. So Renan and others wrote these books. Strauss, I think, was the one's name. Uh, the historical Jesus, where they were trying to show what can actually be shown. Yes, he existed. Yes, he did this, but we don't know anything about that. And if all you knew was what the historical Jesus, this is what he would look like. Well, it was a big, big challenge to those who thought Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. Because that you couldn't prove. But nevertheless, he was a great guy. He was a great teacher. He was, you know, a great guy and very admirable. On the other hand, there were those like Auguste Comte whose philosophy and religion of humanity, unfortunately, I had to study quite deeply for my purposes, who was convinced that, Alf, that Alfred, that Jesus didn't exist, but all these other saints of humanity did, and you had to worship them, not, 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 uh, not Jesus. But I'm glad you brought up Jesus right away, because I'm writing about a cult, and I think the term cult can be often used in a pejorative sense. The French don't use it in a pejorative sense, and I think there was a meaning, and I don't know if I could possibly resuscitate this meaning, for the word cult to mean pretty much what you were calling, let's call it the organizational culture, the, the institutional culture, the culture of a small community. And so one could say, and I have said, that Goddard is a cult. <laughs> and so is Stirling College, where I've taught. And at while, I was teaching both at Goddard and at Stirling College. And it was re that's up the road from here, for those of you who don't know. And they basically people shovel the organic cow manure. And, 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 but now it's, uh, it's quite a college. But in those, days, in those days, it was very much an outward-bound, you know, kind of place. And if you were not the sort of person who looked forward to spending three nights in a tent in the middle of the winter when the blizzard was blowing, you were not a full member of their cult. Uh, what makes it a cult? Well, you have to have a community, a set of practices, and to some extent a set of doctrines, but I think the emphasis, as I see it now, is there's been too much about what people believe. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe this? And especially when I see all the pot shots that people who are not Christians are currently on, on Facebook, the memes are, you know, you call yourself an evangelical Christian. Look, you're a hypocrite. Well, it's very easy to call someone a hypocrite if you don't believe in their religion to begin with. But if you are a member of a cult, then your relationship to these stories is quite different. You might criticize them and so on, but you do it because you still have faith in, in, in the community that you're part of. I I'm, I'm, don't know if I'm going all over the place here. But at any rate, the thing about the cult of Alfred is that it became so wrapped up as the centuries went by with the formation of English identity. So that 
under Queen Elizabeth, he was much appreciated because uh, he had been a Christian and uh, he had uh, translated from the Latin into Old English these Christian texts, but he was not... He, he, you, could, you could preach in the vernacular under Queen Elizabeth. You could preach in the vernacular and be a good Christian because, look, our Anglo-Saxon ancestors did that. Uh, and jump to the Victorians, he became the father of the British Empire. He was the most perfect person who had ever lived. Uh, he was the father of the British Empire, the founder of the British Empire. He was the father of English laws because his laws were the beginning of democracy. He was the founder of the English Navy, which ruled the world. He was the founder, he was the father of English prose, which has now taken over the world. And that was how great he became under the, under the um, Victorians. And in a way, we've been recovering from that. Those of us who care about him have been recovering from that ever since. And my book will be a big step in that direction. I got lost. I forget where I was going. But you, you just said, those, for those of you who care about him, so what's the story that makes you care about him so much? Because you, I, talk, you, 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 give two, you talk about two versions, two stories, and then there's the fables, which I imagine sort of are offshoots. No, when I say the fables, I mean the stories. Okay. I'm using the word fable as one shorthand word for a story told about someone, and I will read, with your permission, the opening remarks in my prospectus because they are so germane and will let me allow me to let go of what I was just rambling on about and switch to what you're talking about. An analogue of the quest for the historical Jesus drives this book. What can hagiographic fables about a young protagonist dubbed Alfred tell us about his historical namesake when he was alive, not yet a character in a romance, let alone the founder of the British Empire? So I take these stories and I say, these are the stories that were told. What can they possibly tell us other than that his name was used for the protagonist? Okay, I think it's time for me to sing my song. Before you do that, this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwork, the Magical Mystery Tour. My guest is Tomas Kalmar, and I've got uh, Carla Haas Moskowitz in the studio with me. And looking at the clock, over an hour has passed in the blink of an eye. So this is going to have to be part one of the series. Uh, we, uh, I just feel like... No, no, we've no, got, no, we we've got about... This is the time where you say, holy moly, we're holy, just, yes. holy moly. We have, we have a little more than 20 minutes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So. I won't have my cigarette break. I'll just sing you the song. You can sing. Yeah. <laughs> you can do some Hatha yodeling. I was, um, this song was written when I was living in southern Illinois, and I had to learn to speak English all over again. That's when I realized that Mark Twain wrote funny because that's the way people actually speak. And uh, I was far, far from academia. I was involved every day in hanging out with uh, 2,000 Mexican farm workers who picked the apples and the peaches there. And, and it looked pretty obvious to me that my famous article on King Alfred's birth date was never going to be published. And the only hope of getting his birth date right was to write a country western song with the refrain, he was not born in 848. And then it would become a big hit. And long after I was dead, 
it would have turned into music so that as people were reaching for their cornflakes in Walmart... Were pressing the elevator button. Yeah, <laughs> they would be humming to themselves, he was not born in 848. I'm the official historian on King Alfred the Great. I've known him since God only knows, and I can't wait to tell you the secret that he revealed to me and everyone that joins in the chorus and we did my friends always joined in the chorus he was not, not born in 848 he was not born in 848 i can sing you the songs he sang before he lost his voice the words that he translated and the reasons for his choice what Osborne said to Judy when his daddy brought her home. The jokes he told in Latin when he got back from Rome. He was not born in 848. I know the Vikings he befriended and why he burnt the cakes. I can quote you the philosophy that helped him win the race. Swa whelk swa aris to them biagakumth. Donne moze hine haban him. Oh, lady, oh, lady. Oh, lady, 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 oh. He'd go, lady, oh, lady, oh, lady, oh, lady, and his friends would all join in. And that is why he won the wars his brothers couldn't win. He suffered from the fecus so bad it made him cry. He was known as England's darling, and I can tell you why. Oh, lady, oh, oh, lady. Wow, yes, that's that's remarkable. Where did you learn to yodel? It <sighs> sounded like yodeling. Maybe well, oh, was that yodeling? Great yodeling? That's a yodel. That's oh, yodeling. Well, I do, that is I don't quality presume, yodeling. That is I echt. don't presume anything in these days. That yes, how did how did you learn and where did you learn to yodel? It's like, it's like swimming. I was just going to say, maybe that's the new sent. That's the new sentence of introduction for advising groups. Goddard, where did you? I learn did teach it. I did do a. I'm not I gave surprised. A great workshop at Goddard, one of the memorable ones, yodeling as a second language. Participants were invited to pretend that they were immigrants in a culture where only people who could yodel could get a job and so they were enrolled in limited yodeling proficiency classes and had to learn to yodel it's amazing it's that's so relevant well, how about how about yes not only the only way to get a job but the only way you can communicate with somebody else i oh, absolutely I, yeah. I had a i took in when i was in sixth grade i had a french teacher he was actually from iran he he absolutely forbade any english speaking in class so we had we started from scratch, and the only way you could communicate was using the lang the only allowed language. So, if you begin with yodeling, and you can only communicate through yodeling, it it, it does communicate. I think your point about. Shall I tell you more about the workshop? Yes. Yes. The first time I gave the workshop, uh, I was fulfilling a vow. 
It is part of this religion that I invented, Hatha Yodel. And it was big in southern Illinois. We had about 60 people who were part of it. And our motto was, a day on which you've yodeled hasn't been completely wasted. And we had a mantra. Meditate while you yodel, oh, meditate while you yodel, oh, meditate while you yodel, oh, meditate while you yodel, meditate, yodel, meditate, yodel. It was a lot of fun. And I had vowed that one day I was going to yodel in the Elliot Lyman Lounge at Harvard Graduate School of Education. And uh, as you see, you got me off my thing where I'm not going to talk about myself. I'm going to tell you a story about myself. I had been at this place I mentioned before, the Adult Literacy Resource Institute. And um, they offered me a position which they desperately needed, which they had called ESL because so many of the people in their adult literacy programs were not really illiterate. Some were, but many were just people who knew another language or two and so they needed someone who understood bilingualism and who was bilingualism and so I insisted it had to be called biliteracy specialist I didn't coin the term at biliteracy but I was one of the first people to be talking about adult biliteracy not just you know K to 12 people who how do people who are bilingual use their literacy when they're competent adults you know and so I gave this workshop as biliteracy specialist of the Adult Literacy Resource Institute at, at uh, Harvard Graduate School of Education in the Elliott Lyman Room. And the blurb said, the voice of the voiceless, or something about the power of the voiceless. And we had two, two models. For the first hour, it was modeled on an classic ESL classroom. You could not use your native language. There were these little devices in those days where you ran a card along. It had a, 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 a strip where you could record your voice and model it on the other, on, on the model. So the, the voice would say, um, a family is a mother, father and children. And you'd have to say that and record your voice and see how it compared to the English. So I got up on stage um, and and had the blackboard, and I pointed to someone, and I went, "Yola And they had to say it back, go back. I wrote it on the board. Oh, lo lo I pointed to that, and oh, lo lo eh, oh, And by the end of you know uh, twenty thirty minutes, everybody in the room could go, That's all they could do. <laughs> but from one point of view, they had learned to yodel. But they couldn't communicate anything. The second hour was the Paolo Freire model. <laughs> uh, dialogue model. And, oh, it was sublime. It started out with silence. And there was only one principle. At any point, you can echo a call. We didn't say what a call was or what an echo was. At first, there was this beautiful long silence. And then someone goes, <coughs> and you hear somewhere else. <coughs> and after 20 minutes, the room was just like, ba! 
buzzing with sounds. I have a tape of when I did this at WSIU with the guy who recorded my song. I mentioned it to you. And it was rec- it was played on their station. It's a, another university station uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And it was, I mean, it's, I can't describe You have to listen to it. It's amazing. I have an experience of, of something just like that. Okay. That was, but it wasn't based on any formula where, where anybody is supposed to repeat. Okay. Like but well, it happened naturally. Well, just to sum that up, you know, I mean, those two models we then discussed, and the, my, I gave a Marxist Christian analysis of the models. <laughs> it was a hoot. So there we are. That was a nice way of evading the question, where did I learn to yodel? Uh, how are we doing on the on the show, and how are we doing on Alfred? Have we got more we need to do on Alfred before we wrap up? I don't know. We have, there's, there's we so have about much. 12 minutes to go. So You're... Much. You're our resident <laughs> scholar. <laughs> we, we're we relatively clueless on on this subject. Oh, well, I'm here uh, in large part to be able to say in uh, short terms what my book is about, why, how it situates in current scholarly work. Okay. But I don't think we need to do that on no, the no, radio. No, no, no. But... Um, the one thing that I, one of my first responses to reading this was, you you're writing this in intensely academic language. Yes, thank you. And I'm so glad you noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of like yodeling. And yes, it's very much like half a yodeling, half a yodeling, half a yodeling. <laughs> and I couldn't help feel like you're also mocking the whole academic <gasps> trip at the same Holy time. Holy moly, I'm in yeah. trouble. This has always been my problem. I genuflect no in front of the gods. I show that I am reverent and that I believe in them, but people pick up that I am actually irreverent. You're, you're like, and so I don't get published because they can't <laughs> trust me, you know, to really mean it. And this is why, this is why I, I asked you if you had read... A, a particular author, because there was a there was a, a book that he wrote where he he makes up this this scholar, this Nabokov. No, Pale Fire. No, this is it's somebody else. But go it's on, go interesting on. that you go on, you mentioned that because there's somebody else. But anyway, there's he makes up a of of world famous, highly respected scholar, and he bases a whole. Um, methodology of thinking and and an argument based on this mythological scholar that he has created. I um, I, I you managed to touch a nerve in the, in, the, in in the best sense of the word when you said what you picked up from this that you didn't say it was a spoof of academic prose or how did you phrase it? It's Mark, a, that you're. That while you're, it's a parody. You're mocking it from inside. You're, you're. It's kind of like you're, you've got your hand behind your head, with with your fingers crossed. <laughs> you're speaking the language to to the nth degree. <laughs> and you're genuflecting before the the great council on <laughs> Anglo-Saxon scholarship, and yet behind your behind. You're secretly snickering at the whole thing, and yet you've, you've invested most of your life in this project at the same time. So. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You have re- you're good, Tonya. I mean, what I tried to do with your learning to swim is nothing compared to what you just managed <laughs> as far as nailing who I am and what I do. I mean, I tried so hard 
to not let on. <laughs> and you got it. I wonder how it came through. It's in the rhythm of the prose, I believe, or in something about the tone of voice. No, it's, 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 it's in my past, ex- my own experience. Your own experience. Yes. No, I, I see, think it's I, your desire to be known. I, I think it's Tonio's astute perception. I just, just recognize. It's your desire to be known. I just recognized you in yeah. it. Say more. I'm, 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 uh, I've never been this far before. <laughs> what are you saying? I, I recognize the kindred spirit because I... <laughs> I'll give you a hug when this is over. <laughs> I just... Because we're all immersed in this world that we live in. And we all participate in it wholeheartedly. And yet some of us have come to... to to at least peek through the veil to some degree to the extent that allows us the space to be able to kind of... Like snicker at... We we realize that something about the way we all believe, 100%, we've fallen for the... We've totally fallen for this story... We forget that it's a story. Boy, boy, and, this is so. And we, and as you, you get these these glimmers, these little peaks through the veil. And you go, oh my God, could it be? Is this just a story? And then, as you live your life and you keep getting more of these glimpses, you realize, wow, I'm fully immersed in this story. My whole life is based on this story. I'm fully living this story and yet I'm seeing that the ground upon which I walk doesn't really exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, Carla, without putting it on the spot, when, when, when Tony was saying that there's something about this that makes one realize the guy's winking at you or something like that, yeah. did you pick that up too? Yeah, I mean, I made, I made that assumption. However, Again, because I can't peel myself away from the text, I also know a bit about you and projecting my own sort of experience as well. And what I came up with was, yes, an authentic, deep passion for the material, for the the process of investigation. And yes, you want it published. And yes, it's quote-unquote academic. And you're, you know, one doesn't have to know you very long or well to know how you know how bright you are you're smart and so you won't let that didn't just accidentally seep out you want people to know that you are you can play this game but you're going to play it on your own terms oh bless you that is so good and that's not as scary as they're going to turn me down once more i mean there's no doubt in mexico we say modestia aparte putting modesty aside Mm -hmm. there's no doubt that some of the times i was my article on, on, on his birth date. Who cares about his birth date? When I showed that they got his birth date wrong, you would have thought that's the first thing they would have published. It took 50 years to get that published. It was published last year by the Medieval Academy of Ireland. When was he born? It doesn't matter when he was born. The problem was... The problem was the Victorians were convinced they knew. Of course. And this was a subtle point. We, they don't know. And no. in order to see, you know, why they thought they knew, you have to realize that they didn't quite understand the syntax of this six-word clause in Old English. That's all there is. And in the second case, they didn't quite realize that in these two manuscripts, the dates weren't there. I mean, it's very, very technical. But it forced me to get to that point. So I have on my wall 
the first rejection slip, I would have thought the question was whether a mere ninth-century scribe could know quite as much about parataxis and ellipsis as Kalmar obviously does. I would rather be wrong with everyone else than right with him. This was the guy from Oxford, you know, so the article got turned down. I got that thing there. Now, what I feel about is what's happened to me now and what you just said helps me see this is that somehow I've managed now because I'm working with a younger person who's not so wrapped up in the old style of mm, academic yep. prose to write in something that's closer to my voice, which is always, you know, got this ironic thing that's trying to tease the, the reader into the questioning something. And, um, and what's very validating is that someone that doesn't know me from Adam, who's a professor, the so-and-so professor of church history at New Brunswick Theological Seminary. He's not Cambridge, he's not Oxford, he's not Harvard, but he's at this very august uh, Reformed Church Theological Seminary that has been around since 1700 and something or other, and he really, really, really liked this. And he's the guy who's written the book on saints' lives, women and their saints and their male hagiographers. And the two of us have been exchanging these very friendly, relaxed uh, exchanges. And that gives me hope that there is a readership out there now that will see that there's nothing wrong with taking the side of the story against the fact that taking... The last chapter is going to be called Living the Romance. Alfred was a youngest son, and if the folktales have the quality of these famous folktales where the father, once upon a time, one of the chapters begins, the middle chapter, the most important chapter, and it'll be a good way to end up. Once upon a time, there was a king who had three sons. You all know what's going to happen. There's going to be a quest. There's going to be a test of some sort. The first son fails. it. He doesn't get the prize. The second son fails, and the youngest son does the thing be with the help of a pretendant person or a wily stratagem and he gets the princess and gets the crown and then i change that story little by little until you realize it is alfred's story he was the youngest son he went to rome and there the pope anointed him king although his brothers were alive he did these various things that showed he, he was like joseph in the bible he was the one who saved the kingdom these brothers couldn't they all lasted two years and the vikings killed them off so the structure of his life is romantic. And this guy uh, appreciated all of that, 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 you know, what I'm trying to say there. So, how are we doing? We've got a couple more minutes. Okay, it's been I just wonderful that, experience. I just think the timing is, I believe in this. I think the timing is right why? for the book t to be released, and that's why it's happening that way. Um, I think it's the person that you're communicating with, and this is going to be a time when what you have to say is really going to be needed and understood and heard, which is why exactly why it's going to get published now, and it was not published before. I really, for what it's worth. Okay, well, I hope you'll tell me a little more about why now is the time, because I yeah. seem to have not caught up with the 21st century. <laughs> I've made it out of the 9th, I've made it out of the 19th, I've made it yeah. into the 20th. Well, you've you've been met by somebody mm -hmm. in the 21st yes, yeah. century, very much so. and yeah. that is the key. That's very much so. That's the key. Thank you. And then now there's you guys. And I've come out of my hobbit hole, and I'm starting to see where the world has moved on. Thank you. Bless you guys both. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been a blast. This has been a blast. <laughs> Old lady. He was not born in 1848. You know, it's a hard to get the... The key. I'm a little off on. Oh, the key. don't worry about the key. Who well, I, I like. You know, I, I want it to be right. <laughs> it's right. It is. If you do it, it's right. Oh wow. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll use you as a reference on my resume then. I would be honored. <laughs> okay. But it would be the kiss of death for you. <laughs> well, we share that. I think. <laughs>
<laughs> we just have a little music in the background. We do have a little music but in the background. But we can continue to... Are we off? off no, no, we're, we're still on. on. Maybe I just... But I mean, if I speak, are they hearing me? Yes. Yeah, they're, 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 you're on. The millions of listeners syndicated as well. Uh, this show is... <laughs> you don't want to speak. Oh, no. I'll no, answer. You, you, you should I don't speak. want to initiate something. Oh. Well, I, I feel the need to tell you that I did a workshop on wiffle balls and uh, dioramas, which is not quite the same as yodeling, but it's one of my best workshops. This I love that. Wiffle balls I have diorama. no idea what you're talking about, but, yeah, but it I, sounds wonderful. Wiffle it, balls and dioramas. Well, yeah, because basically <laughs> I, 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 over the years I've taught that workshop. Uh, I love wiffle ball and I love diorama, so it was totally motivated by my passions. But it sounded like your yodeling workshop actually had some ed- educational value. <laughs> but mine, mine was about playing. Well, I guess why should again? I need to. It was about playing and construction and the beauty of that. And by the way, I, I purchased and, and and have received your book on biliteracy, and I can't wait to dig in. Your book on biliteracy, oh, alphabet. Love it. I, I, it's sitting on my table. Just arrived yesterday. These are just these you're are random. Alphabets. We're ending the show with takeouts. <laughs> so so again, but you're in. So thank, thank you take-ins. both, Thomas Kalmar. Carla Haas-Moskowitz, this has been a blast. Thank, thank you, Tony. Thank you so much. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. It's been thank magical. you all so much for listening. And of course, yodel your way through life. Yodel. Just remember the day on which you yodeled hasn't been training. completely wasted. <laughs>